Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am Sarah, your host, and I've got Darcy, my co-host, with me um, on the other Hello. part of the country. Wait, you, are you on the other part of the country? No, well, I'm on the other part, north to south. Okay, yeah, well... Yeah. You know, we just usually think about it east to west. I'm sorry, but my <laughs> brain is a little fried. <laughs> I've been, I've been working very, fried. very hard lately, and yeah. we're looking at properties, um, and so there's just a lot going on, and I'm going at it hard. So, yeah. Um, today we're going to talk about a very kind of dark, um, grim case, but I want to start out um, with a kind of a lighter note, um, a happy kind of a story. This one is okay. saved from euthanasia. Watch as Buddy the Blind Horse enjoys new life at Catskill Animal Sanctuary. Oh. He's so sweet. Known as Buddy Number 4, this 31-year-old Appaloosa isn't the first blind animal at Catskill's Animal Sanctuary, nor is he even... 31. Yeah, he's 31. They live really long, horses. Um, he's not even the first non-sighted horse to pass through its gates. Founder Kathy Stevens grew up on a horse farm and opened the sanctuary um, 20 years ago so that at-risk animals like Buddy could have a forever home, even if they never had one before, or if they mm. did have one before. But um, they were contacted by Buddy's owner, a woman who had had him for his entire life, and she was not in a position to care for him as a blind animal and was going to euthanize him. Aww. This is an extremely common phenomenon. Folks don't have the knowledge or the patience for these animals, and they don't want to make the adjustments to make their pasture or barn safer sometimes, so they don't understand that a blind animal can indeed live an incredibly full and joyful life. They think that they yeah. think that euthanasia is the most humane option. Well, it sounds like this woman obviously knew, like, there was another option out yeah. there. Yeah, thank goodness. Or this person. This Somebody other. directed her in the right direction. But yeah. Buddy arrived at the sanctuary in early October, and the affectionate equine immediately responded to Stephen's gentle but repetitive direction that helped him understand his new surroundings, the changes in terrain, when he's stepping into water, where his food is, and how to move into his trailer. She says that although he was loved before, he still has the capacity to learn, even as an animal in advanced years. I guess the average lifespan of a horse is 25 to 30 years, and so he's a little on the older side, but um, yeah. I guess you can teach an old horse new tricks, <laughs> evidently. <laughs> um, but working with him was truly a matter of applying common sense when answering the question, what additional support do blind animals need in order to feel safe and confident? Um, oh my goodness, he's an incredibly smart boy. I was blown away by how quickly he learned words up, down, stop, choppy water, and so on. But he's making headlines now because of an inspirational viral video with more than 1.3 million views that show this incredible bond that he and Stevens have in such a short time. Mm. Teaching buddy language also communicates loudly and clearly that you've got their back, so it's important to build trust, as you can see in the video below, and you can go look at this link. We'll put the link in, the, um, in our show notes. It's truly amazing how quickly Buddy understood the cues and even runs by having faith and love and dedication he receives. Aww. It takes patience and time to build trust, but oh my, what a payoff it is. Mm. So approximately 25% of all Appaloosas, including Buddy, develop equine recurrent uvitis, an autoimmune disease that causes blindness. So really? a quarter of them. Um, and Steven says that they're eight times more likely to have the condition than other horses, other horse breeds. Hmm. Plus one of Buddy's best mates at the sanctuary is Buddy number three. He's also a blind Appaloosa. He's 35. Oh my gosh. And he's the sanctuary's oldest resident. After days spent wandering the pasture, at night their stalls are next to each other and they cut a large oh. window in the wall so they could nuzzle and feel less isolated. 
Not all of the rescued residents of Catskill Animal Sanctuary are horses, or blind for that matter. Buddy number four is making friends with Mario the pig, Chester and Arlo the wonder goats, and Tucker the Holstein steer. The team at the sanctuary specializes in geriatric animal care, so our new pal Buddy receives customized senior diet and holistic treatments, plenty of fresh air and exercise, and special bedding to cushion him as he ages. Every animal is remarkably individual. While most of us only understand this about dogs and cats, it's the same regardless of the species, says Stevens. Every pig, every chicken, every blind horse, every cow, no matter what their age, wants their lives as we want ours. And much like our companion, companion animals, they require extra support to grow old with joy and dignity. After a long life, it sounds like buddy number four is in retirement heaven just so Yay. cute i'm like those kind of stories just sort of war- warm your heart yes i used to ride horses and we actually one of the horses my sister and i rode was an evolusa i did not know a they could live that long and b that a lot of them go blind yeah that's a good portion of them yeah um but you know it sounds as though there are definitely options for horses if they do have that issue Um, I grew up around horses and animals of all kinds um, in the wonderful little town of Snohomish, Washington, which is Buckaroo Central in the Pacific Northwest. Is it? Yeah, there's horses everywhere. There was everybody that I knew rode horses when I was growing up, just about, unless you lived in town. Yeah. Um, And even then, a lot of them still rode horses. And I like to go out and ride occasionally now as well, if I get the opportunity to, because I love horses. I kind of don't agree with it anymore, even though I did it when I was younger. Like, I don't agree with... Horseback riding? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I just kind of feel like it's not, like, like the kindest way to have a pet horse. You know what I mean? I don't know. I think that they like having a job to do. As long as you don't beat them or whip them, I think that it's... Okay, they like to go out and hike around and ride and gallop and run and. Yeah, but I guess like the maybe in, maybe I just mean like the way that we used to ride, which was like the equestrian, like the jumping. Oh yeah, and no, stuff I, like I don't. That. I'm not real big yeah. on that kind of stuff. I feel like that's almost yeah. abusive. Um, yeah, and the horse like races, kind of just like, that's bad too. Yeah, like the horse is doing all the work. You're not, and I say this as somebody who rode horses. So like, if you're gonna ride in, don't be like you don't know anything. I do know something, I know, but. Like, yeah. the horse is doing the I mean, work, that, that's not That's my the own personal opinion, too. Like, don't, please don't send us hate mail if you're an equestrian and do that for It's pretty. Reasons. It's really pretty. I just don't know that I agree with, like, that we should do it just because it's pretty. Yeah. Well, horses are beautiful creatures. They're incredibly intelligent. Yes. Um, and they pick yes. up on so many cues that people don't, I think, expect or anticipate that they would pick up on. Mm-hmm. They're very, very smart. So yes, they, they um, are. the instances where they're just being euthanized, you know, because people can't care for them or can't mm-hmm. afford them, it just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, let's jump into the main case for the day. Um, I spent okay. the last weekend in Chicago over the Thanksgiving weekend and mm-hmm. went to the site where HH's, where HH Holmes's murder castle was. It's obviously Ooh. not there anymore. There's like a post office right. right next to it. And it's kind of like, it doesn't look anything, I think, like what you think that it would look like. Is there like a marker? No. Um, okay. I didn't see anything. And we didn't get out of the okay. car. We just drove by. But gotcha. I think that for me, what makes this case so interesting is that he's, I think, known by many people as the first 
serial killer in the U.S. Yeah. Um, the first official serial killer, number yeah. one. Number two, this happened in the late 1800s. Um, mm-hmm. And so we spent some time in the city in the Palmer Hotel, which was built in the 1870s. Ooh, I love doing stuff like the that. The hotel is super cool. It was built, I think, like in 1870 or 1871, and then it burned down mm-hmm. in the Chicago fire. Right. It was a um, a gift, a wedding gift. I don't know whether it was him. The guy's name was Potter, and his wife's name was Bertha. Bertha is like such an 1800s name. It, it's a very yeah. But it was a, it's a very old it was a wedding name. gift. I'm not sure whether it was him to her or whether it was somebody to them. But in any yeah. case, they had this hotel and it burned down in the Great Chicago Fire in 1871, and then they rebuilt it. That was the one caused by the cow, yeah. right? Well, they say that, but there's I mean, there's I know no it wasn't evidence, really, but like but that's the yeah. I know yeah. the whole song. <laughs> Late last night when I was home in bed, Mrs. O'Leary took a lantern to the shed, and when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, "There'll be a hot time in the old town tonight." Fire, fire, fire! Um, that was like a camp song that we had to sing when we were kids. I've never actually heard that song. I mean, I've heard like this. There's like a story or like a rhyme or something. Yeah, but... um, I think anyway, that they've actually that. like debunked that story. Like, yeah, it had they did. Nothing to do with any. Leary's or anything like that but I mean it's not hard to imagine that that sort of a thing could happen back then because number one most of the structures were wood and so it was very very fire friendly so anytime you Mm -hmm. have something like that that's mostly when the streets were made out of wood and everything was just very flammable so having something like that happen where the city was very crowded and buildings were close together one thing burns on and then it lights the next and then the next and the next and it ends up being just a horrific you know um yeah uh, what was the word i'm looking for um it's a powder cake waiting to blow up yes um so but what i found was that I can't speak so what i found was interesting though was this hotel was i think very much like what um, H.H. Holmes had intended with his own sort of hotel during the World's Fair. And so okay. as I kind of walked the streets in Chicago and around the area as well, I could imagine a very similar sort of a like abode and a hotel and the way people mm-hmm. looked and thought. And as you're walking down in downtown Chicago, have you been to Chicago? I went like once for a work thing. We went to... Um it's a, a university in Chicago. I don't remember the name of it. It wasn't Northwestern, but um, anyway, for a research program that they had. Um, so I just went for like a day trip and then that was it. But his like area where he had this supposed murder castle is not really in the downtown proper area. It's out a little oh, ways. Oh, really? Yeah, it's in this area okay. called Englewood. And um, not quite as sort of um, tightly packed in as the city is, but kind of what I thought to myself as I was walking around in downtown Chicago is that it's you've got the the train or the you know the above ground yeah. train system there the L yeah and it's dark and as you're mm-hmm. walking around down there it's tightly packed it's crowded there's a lot of people and it's easy to just disappear Mm-hmm. Right. So I thought to myself, it would be a sort of a situation back then where everything is kind of grim. It's dark. It's cold. People don't talk to each other. You walk down, you're huddled over. I think it would be easy mm-hmm. for him to have, you know, conceivably taken 250, 300 people yeah. without anybody knowing. And the system wasn't set up back then for people to have cell phones and telephone conversations and things like that. So, right. you know, you had people that would disappear and no one would ever know to even ask 
where they were because they didn't have a system yeah. in place for that. But And so many people are, like, moving to the big city to get jobs, and then there's also the World's yeah. Fair. So, like, there, there's so many people in and out of the city that, like, would just completely go unnoticed. It's like a transient yeah. community. So I tried to kind of, you know, get in that mind frame of what it was like back then and what, you know, because a lot of those buildings that are down there, not a lot, but quite a few, were around in the 1800s. Right. And you can imagine that it, it looked different, but then there were some things that didn't look different. Mm-hmm. So Holmes... Um, he was born as Herman Webster Mudgett, which I think is very Mudgett, interesting. That's a pretty rough. I love yeah. that name for some weird reason. I don't. Know, I don't know why. It's so like. Yeah, I don't know why either. Country to me, like it just. It, it is. It speaks very a very country. sort of a lack of sophistication almost to me. Like it, your name would be Mudgett if you were a farmer and you'd be mucking pig stalls or whatever. Yeah. That's <laughs> so just kind of what it reminded me of, but. His yeah. name is Herman, and Herman to me as well is kind of one of those names that's not very common either now. Mm-hmm. But he was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Uh, May- it's hard to imagine, sorry to interrupt, it's sure. hard to imagine like a baby being no- named yeah, Herman. Yeah, Herman doesn't seem like a very <laughs> childlike <laughs> you know name. I mean? right? Yeah, like you can imagine like an adult man named Herman, but like yeah. a baby. Yeah. This is my baby Herman. I mean, you see this yeah. guy's picture, he doesn't look like a Herman mudget to me. So, like, I get it. He, no, he ended he, yeah, up he, well, changing his name. But. He has the very sophisticated, like, twirly mustache. And, like, he, ha- <laughs> he has an HH look a little, about little him. A little derby hat. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, he was born May 16th, 1861, in that uh, New Hampshire Ooh. town. His dad, Levi Horton Mudgett, and his mother, Theodate Page Price. Or Theodate. It's an interesting name for a female. Um, yeah. And it's one of those very old-timey things to me when they have names like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they were descended from the first English immigrants that moved to the area. So British. Okay. Um, he was the third child. He had an older sister, Ellen, and an older brother, Arthur. So, And then he had a younger brother, Henry, and a younger sister, Mary. So there were okay. quite a few kids in this family, which, again, in that time period was not entirely uncommon, particularly yeah. if you live on a farm. Um, well, it was a numbers game, yeah. right? Because not all of the kids no. typically survived. And you needed a lot of kids to help out with the yeah. farm work. Um, yeah. They lived, they were a farming family, and his father kind of did lots of different things. He worked as a farmer, a trader, a house painter, um, and his parents were Methodists, like pretty like okay. severe Methodists, which, again, not that uncommon back then. Religion was a very strong factor for a lot of people mm-hmm. in that time period, and it helped a lot of people have the strength to survive the terrible cold and grim yeah. conditions that were, uh, I think, pretty commonplace back then. So I guess people say when they um, have accounts of him now that he had that kind of a stereotypical childhood where he tortured animals and suffered from abuse from this violent father. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are people that were eyewitnesses as well that say that there's no proof of any of that. Yeah, his background's really hard to pin down. And I think that just the time period. Like, you know, yeah. obviously no one from back then is still alive. So it's not like you're yeah. going to have a first-hand account. And I just don't think that record-keeping and things of that nature were all that accurate back then anyway. So you right. got to kind of take whatever they say about him with a grain of salt because there's no really way to, to prove any of that now. But yeah, evidently like if it he wasn't w- in the family Bible, it didn't happen. Seriously. But evidently he was really smart. And, you know, I don't, mm-hmm. uh, serial killers, I think in general, in order to get away with something like that, you have to be 
a little bit smart. <laughs> sometimes. Like, there's there's a mix. Sometimes it's just luck, and sometimes it's just bad work on the right, part of the police kill, department. Right, to kill, you so. know, allegedly killed over 200 people and get away the way, with it. Yes, the way, yes, he did. The way that he did it, yes. So he graduated from Phillips Dexter Academy at 16. Okay. And then he took teaching jobs um, in, in wow. his town and nearby towns. So obviously he had to be somewhat smart, right? He's mm-hmm. teaching at 16. Yeah. Teaching is not an easy job. Sorry, I don't care uh-uh. who says that. It's not. Uh-uh. But um, he actually married Clara Lovering. So he was 17 when he married this girl. Okay. He married her July 4th, 1878. And again, back then, like, there's no premarital sex. There's no playing around. Everything was prim and proper. And so if you, like you wanted. I feel it was. It just it wasn't Well, about. yeah. I mean, if you were a good yeah. person or a good girl, good right. girl, you didn't do those sorts of things. Right. But in any case, like, they got married very young. And it's said they had a, this son, Robert Lovering Mudgett was born in 1880. So he's like 19 years old and a father and married and teaching. And it just seems like that's really accelerated childhood at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Evidently this, this, again, the only reason I say this is because it has a Florida, Orlando, Florida connection, which is, you know, where we always go to, but they had, evidently their son became a certified public accountant and served as a city manager for Orlando, Florida, the city of Orlando. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he went from New Hampshire and serial killer to his son being the city manager of Orlando, Florida. So clearly, you know, there's some intelligence, there's some drive, there's some ambition in that family. But um, in any case, Holmes enrolled at the University of Vermont in Burlington. He was only 18 when he enrolled. And he didn't really like it so much, so he left after about a year. And then entered the University of Michigan Department of Medicine and Surgery and graduated June 1884. He passed all of exams okay. at that point. So the guy's smart. Like, medical school. Like, yes. Really? Like, wow. So while he was enrolled there, he worked in the anatomy lab um, under the chief anatomy instructor and apprenticed in New Hampshire under another gentleman who was an advocate of human dissection. So yeah. I guess looking back on it they suspected you know when he was suspected of murder and mm-hmm. some insurance fraud he admitted that he had used cadavers to defraud yeah um and it was stuff that he had learned about while he spent time in college under these guys who worked in anatomy and human dissection so yeah i thought that was interesting but um his housemates said that he described or excuse me his housemates which Did they go and interview all these people and they were in the newspaper? Like, evidently, they described him as treating his wife very violently. And he Mm. um, moved, she moved back to New Hampshire and took off and was like, I'm not dealing with this, like, which is interesting. Um, In about 1884, and she didn't know anything about him after that. Like, she lost touch with him after that. Can you imagine? She said, She got lucky. Like, seriously. Like, seriously. I would. Yeah, she survived. She was able to break away from him. But, like, I think that in itself is rare as well because uh, abused women, uh, violence in domestic relationships back then was, I think, a lot more common than it is now. And the woman oh, yeah. didn't have a lot of choices. Yeah. You had to just take it um, because you were considered property. 
Yep. But she got away. She went back home to her family and took their son and, and survived, and good for her. So he moves back, or excuse me, he moves to Moore's Forks, New York, okay. and is seen hanging around with a little boy who later disappeared. Okay, this is, he's starting to have some shady activity, right? So the, yeah. the boy goes back to Massachusetts is what Holmes said. Holmes said, hey, he went back to Massachusetts, he left, I have no idea what happened to him. Um, and there was no investigation, and Holmes took off. So they didn't really yeah. get an opportunity to look into that further. And back then, because they didn't have computers or phones or any of that other stuff, like, how are they going to keep track of this guy? They're going to send, like, a wire? Tap, 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 yeah. tap. Yeah. <laughs> look for this guy. Be on the lookout. No, it wasn't a thing. So, like, he just went to the next town. He then went to Philadelphia and got a job as a keeper at a state hospital but quit after a few days. I'm not really sure what a keeper is. A keeper? It says he was a keeper. I wonder if that's like a, um, like an orderly? Yeah. It sounds like that's what it was. Yeah. Um, or maybe somebody... Which I don't even think they have like orderlies anymore. Maybe it's, it's like, like, yeah, like tending now. patients and, and yeah. looking after them and writing their medical charts or something like that. But it, it, yeah. it was interesting that it said he wasn't a doctor. Right. Um, he then took a position at a drugstore in Philadelphia... And a boy died after taking medicine that was purchased at the store. So he was back there in the pharmacy, like, stirring up the drugs. Yeah. Um, and when he got involved, uh, excuse me, when he got interviewed, he said, I have nothing to do with this, and then left. <laughs> Which, interesting. He has a pattern. Yeah. So I think this is like the, the very beginning of him experimenting with killing. Right. Yeah. I mean, it could have been even further before this, right? He could have started right. with animals and then worked his way on to children. But yeah. then he moved to Chicago, and at that point, he said to have changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes. So that's when he got H.H. More... Holmes. Right. Yeah. And this is, um, the reason for this was because they say he didn't want to be exposed for his scams and previous crimes right. and all the other stuff that he'd done prior to moving to Chicago. So he picked out that wonderful name henry howard holmes which because yeah you could just change your to name me, he looks more like a henry. become a new person he looks more like a henry but that's just me he, yes he does um da, 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 da. so evidently he claimed later that he killed his former medical school classmate for insurance money the guy's name mm -hmm. was robert leacock and that was in 1886 so again mm -hmm. he's not caught he's not exposed but he's experimenting with his methods, right? Yeah. Um, and people say that this guy died in Ontario in 1889, so he couldn't have killed him. And, and they don't know how many of the people that Holmes, you know, admitted to killing were actually truly killed. Oh, interesting. I didn't, I've not heard that part of the story, that there's, like, accounts of this guy being alive. After, I'd always heard he killed him. It says that he died in Watford, Ontario, October 5th, huh. 1889. So, uh, and you got to take that with a grain of salt because I really don't think record keeping was all that accurate back yeah. then either um, in many ways. So he could have, but there's some speculation that he did not and that he died later. Yeah. Um, in any case, 1886 comes around and he's still married to Clara, his first wife. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know what? I like this other gal. I'm going to go marry this Murda Belknap. Well, because Herman was married to Clara. Yes, right. So he had changed his name. but Henry Howard. He, there was, was no now, divorce. Yeah. There was no, you know, 
Yeah. It was just, I'm just going to go get married to this other woman. Yeah. Um, and this was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So evidently he had filed for divorce from Clara a few weeks after he married Murda, alleging oh, infidelity on her part. The claims <laughs> could not be proven, and so the suit just kind of got thrown out, which back then you had to prove the infidelity, right. which is crazy, right? How do you prove that? Like, I guess you have did witnesses. Did they have irreconcilable differences or anything no. like that? Like you just, All you had no. to say was she cheated or she left or she's mentally insane. It was very... Um, there wasn't a high burden of proof in order to get right. something like that pushed through the court system back then. Yeah. Um, and it was very, very easy to show that somebody was mentally ill. You just had a witness come in, say she's ill, done. Especially for a woman. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. And side yeah. note, I was reading this story about um, an asylum that was burned down, an abandoned asylum that was actually um, built and run during this time period. And it, it was actually called the Mental Asylum for Women, no, the Sanatorium for Women with Mental Health Diseases, Alcoholism, and Drug Addiction. Wow. And it was like, any, it was just a place where people dropped women off, you know, if they had PMS. Like, or you wanted yeah. to get rid of them. So you just dropped her off there and said, oh, she's an alcoholic or, oh, she's yeah. this or, oh, she's, you know, if she has bipolar disorder, they didn't have distinctions between those mental um, health diagnoses it was back then. So it was just, yeah, they just dropped them yeah. off at the sanatorium. And so she could just be someone who has, you know, depression, just minor yeah. depression or, you know, someone who's sad, you know what I mean? And they, they could be next to a schizophrenic with right. 12, 12 personalities. <laughs> like it was just like... A little bit of everything back then. And it was interesting because I was looking at this place ended up burning down, but I looked on the inside of it. It was in this um, listing on Instagram about abandoned buildings and old homes, but it kind of, it was the time period. So it sort of reminded me of that. When, where was it? Uh, Maryland. Oh, okay. Because there's one that's like, I think in Louisville. I don't think it's specifically to women, but there's like an old sanatorium in Louisville Asylum that is supposed to be like haunted and stuff. People go to oh, yeah. tours all that. over the place. And this wasn't yeah. really like a big building, like like a hospital type. It was a house. It's just oh, a okay. really big house, like a mansion. And it had been okay. a sanatorium, which I think was not uncommon back then either. They just had these random smaller sanatoriums where they would drop yeah. women off and, and leave them. So, and they were clear, they were women, you know, only. They didn't right. have male patients in there. So it was interesting to look at this place and the inside of huh. it. And it was beautifully built. It was actually built as um, a home in, I think, the 1700s prior to the U.S. becoming uh, its own country. Oh, interesting. And it was part of some sort of a land grant or something. And the way they built the house, they did it in a way so that it would lessen the taxes to the British government. Huh. And it was just, it was super interesting. So anyway, yeah. side note. Um, in any case, this, um, he had filed this paperwork for this infidelity from his first wife, Clara, and the suit didn't go anywhere. The surviving paperwork indicated she was probably never even informed of the suit. So he never had her served. Oh, and the okay. divorce was never finalized. It was actually dismissed June 4th, 1891. Um, and then Holmes had a daughter with his second wife, uh -huh. His polygamous second wife. Um, her name was Lucy, and she was born July 4th, 1889, in Englewood, Chicago, Illinois. So Englewood, again, okay. is the community where he had his yeah. murder castle, um, slightly apart from the main downtown part of the city. Lucy ended up going on to become a public school teacher. So, again, she had to have been, you know, relatively intelligent as well. Yeah. 
And Holmes lived with Marta and Lucy in Willamette, Illinois, and spent most of his time in Chicago tending to business. So they're separated a little bit, and he goes into Chicago for quote-unquote business, which I think a lot of men did back then. Uh And by business, it's smoking, drinking, doing drugs, or hanging out with sex workers back then. Yeah. Um, And where is Willamette? Is that like just like outside of the city? So we're looking at about 20 miles. It's 20 miles, okay. 20 miles north, uh, just on the other that side was of Evanston. Like good hike. Yeah, on the other side of Evanston, close, closer okay. to the water. Um, and Evanston was where the case happened with um, the Suh family. Yes. So, another Chicago link. Um, yeah. In any case, um, he spent his time in Chicago doing his little, his own thing, and then married another woman, Georgiana Yoke, on January 17th, 1894. And Did he, he mar- divorce? Nope. The second wife? Nope. Oh, my God. He was okay. still married to both Clara and Murda back then. Um, huh. And he married uh, Georgiana in Denver. Okay. So, good times, 1894. Um, he was in Chicago from 1886, I guess. That's when he first arrived, from August 1886. And that's when he started using that name H.H. H. Holmes. Um, and his business. Okay, let's talk about his business a little bit. So, he came across yeah. this Elizabeth... S. Holton Drugstore. Mm-hmm. And there's old pictures of this, and you can see what it used to look like. But it was at the northeast corner of South Wallace Avenue and West 63rd Street in Englewood. That's when I drove by. There's like a post okay. office there now. It's real, like, chill. It, it's kind of like spread out city. Like, it's not very compact like New York or downtown Chicago. It's almost like suburby. Okay. But in any case, this woman gave Holmes a job. And yeah. he was super hardworking and eventually bought the store from her. And I think this is where there's sort of some diverging stories. Like there are books that say that um, Holton's husband was an old man and mm-hmm. that the two of them vanished shortly after <laughs> Mr. H.H. came around. Mm-hmm. Um, but in actuality, I think the evidence shows that Dr. Holton, I guess was his name, was a fellow Michigan alumni. And it was only a few few years older than Holmes. And that both the husband and wife remained in Englewood throughout Holmes' life and survived into the 20th century. Oh. So okay. it's a myth that they were yeah. murdered by Holmes as part of his serial killing. Um, they also say that Holmes did not kill castle victims Kate Durkee, who turned out to be alive, and several other people. I think when this whole thing broke i think there was this sort of a frenzy and they wanted to attribute as many as they could to the serial killer number one for notoriety Mm -hmm. number two so they could you know put closure on some of the cases of people who are missing and then number three maybe because they wanted to throw this guy lock him up and throw away the key yeah but there were some victims that weren't actually victims um can you imagine they're like oh my god this is a murder victim and you're like no i'm just I'm alive. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> I just moved to the next town over. <laughs> yeah. And the thing was, they didn't have internet. They didn't have phones. So it's not yeah. like you could track people. It just wasn't a thing. God, that's wild. Yeah. So he bought an empty lot across from the drugstore. And that's where he started building this two-story mixed-use building in 1887. So he kind of combined mm-hmm. these spaces after buying that drugstore. Um, there was kind of apartments on the second floor and retail space down below, including a new drugstore. Okay. Was. He built his own 
he he did buy that one, but then he 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 built another one in the in the hotel. So in any case, um, this is his little separate thing now. Just coincidentally, this man named John De Brule, who was a creditor of Holmes, ended up dying of. And have you heard this phrase, apoplexy? Yes, I don't know what it is though. I gotta find out what it means. But evidently, this but creditor ended up dying of this. I don't think it's a diagnosis anymore. <laughs> it's an unconscious or incapacity resulting from a cerebral hemorrhage or a stroke. Okay. Oh, okay. So, evidently, this man John De Brule, who was one of Holmes's creditors when he was doing all the stuff with building and getting his own drugstore and whatnot, died April seventeenth, eighteen ninety-one. Okay. In the drugstore. In the drugstore. In the drugstore, he had kind of a stroke. And they say that this is was a tri- could be attributed to Holmes. Because Some kind of apothecary. Yeah. Mischief. Like, he had to have given him something to make yeah. this happen. Just coincidentally, he happens to be a creditor. Um, when Holmes declined to pay the architects or the steel company um, that provided him with the products to build on his land, they sued him. And this was in 1888. In 1892, he added a third floor, and he told investors and suppliers he intended to use it as a hotel during the World's Columbian Exposition. Yeah. Though they say the hotel portion never really got completed. Now, the fair was a big thing back then. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you ever go to the fair when you were a kid? We... We went to, like, the Alabama State Fair, which is very much not the same as what you're talking about. Um, but so that's kind of my only experience with the fair. It was the World's Fair, because it yes. was essentially called the World's Fair Columbian Expedition, and it was also known as the Chicago World's Fair. Yes. And it was held... There had been other ones in, like, St. Louis or something? Yes. I think they had them in a lot of major cities. Yeah. Um, but in any case, this one was held in Chicago in 1893 to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World in 1492, oh. which... Okay. Right? Yeah. I um, didn't know that. The centerpiece of the fair was held in Jackson Park, and there was a large water pool that was supposedly representing the voyage Columbus took to the New World. What? Okay. Um, and Chicago had won the right to host this over cities like New York, Washington, D.C., and St. Louis. Oh, okay, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. And supposedly this exposition was very influential socially and culturally and had a profound effect on architecture, sanitation, the arts, Chicago's self-image, and the American industrial optimism. So a bunch of these famous you know, guys helped design this neoclassical architecture mm-hmm. to sort of create this symmetry and balance and of all these buildings and different things that were associated with this. And the architects designed 14 great buildings, they called them. Okay. And there were artists and musicians that were featured in exhibits and works of art, etc. The exposition itself covered about 690 acres, Whoa. which that's a huge, huge yeah. area. And there were nearly 200 new buildings, canals and lagoons, and people and cultures from 46 countries that were involved and more than 27 million people attended the exposition during its six month run so it went on for six entire months yeah well like would have had to because everybody's got to travel there and all that crap yeah so the scale kind of exceeded any of the other world's fairs and it became a symbol of the emerging american exceptionalism and it's sort of like the way the Great Exposition became a symbol of the Victorian era yeah. United Kingdom. So the Victorian era had its own little show. Yeah. 
Anyway, um, let's see here. Dedication ceremonies were held October 21st, 1892, and the fairground was officially opened to the public May 1st, 1893. And the fair continued until October 30th, 1893, and the fair also served to show the world that Chicago had risen from the ashes of the Great Chicago Fire, which destroyed much of the city in 1871. And Chicago Day, was October 9th, 1893. The fair set a world record for outdoor event attendance, drawing 751,000 people. That's a lot of people. The debt for the fair was paid off with a check for $1.5 million, which was equivalent to $43.2 million Holy in 2020. Cow. So I guess this fair is commemorated with one of the stars on the municipal flag in Chicago. So anyway, that's the whole exposition thing. So it's this really, really big series of buildings and a lot of it stayed after the Chicago exposition yeah. was done, but it's this six-month event. It was really big, and I think that probably a lot of different um, people back then, whether they be purveyors of hotels, food, restaurants, or whatever, really kind of capitalized on that event to make money and to put themselves out there and and make careers out of it and, and really turn Chicago into sort of this glamorous kind of cosmopolitan city. Yes. So um, at this time, Mr. HH is like, hey, I'm going to mm -hmm. get in on this. And so he's like, I'm going to build this hotel. And he gets it somewhat completed with three stories in a basement. And the first floor was the storefront. The second story actually had his elaborate system of torture rooms mm -hmm. and evidently there was a shoot that led yeah. to the basement after he killed the them so that he could situation. either cremate them or use the skeletons to sell mm -hmm. right um, the third floor had more apartment rooms and in addition to all the other craziness there were soundproof rooms and mazes of hallways some that seemed to go nowhere and again, like I said, there were sort of these system of shoots that would drop straight down to the basement. And in the basement were acid bats, quicklime, and a crematorium to burn yeah. the bodies. It just feels like if you're a contractor, and granted this was 1890s, but like if you're a contractor and somebody's like, I need a soundproof room, you need to find out more information. That's creepy. Like a second question yeah. needs to be asked. Maybe they're just building like, like a sound why? studio, but like you need to ask. Why? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then evidently some of the furniture suppliers, because, yeah. you know, if you have that many rooms and that much space, you've got to have a lot yeah. of furniture, right? He, I guess, was hiding materials that he never paid for in these hidden rooms and passages throughout this well, he building. And he also kept hiring, he would hire different contractors for different parts, and, like, none of them knew exactly what the other one was doing. So, like, nobody could put together exactly what his house was going to be. No. Yeah. And he was just constantly yeah. doing that. And who else did that? They would get rid of the, as soon as they know. were created, get rid of the, somebody else, another serial killer, a famous person or like a king or something like that did a similar kind of a thing. No one ever really knew the architecture of the building so that they couldn't come in and find things. But anyway, um, I guess this big search happened throughout this hotel and it made the news. And once it did, investors for the hotel pulled out 
Um, and we're like, no, we're not going to spend money yeah. on this. Because obviously it's a very large space and it's expensive to build that kind of yeah. thing. And he had had investors involved so that he could help pay for it because he wasn't independently yeah. wealthy. And once they found out of, that he was hiding stuff, they pulled out. Um, and then police inspected the hotel in 1894. They found rooms with hinged walls and false partitions, links, rooms linked with secret passageways, and even airtight rooms that were connected to pipelines filled with gas. So he had his own little Jesus. private gas chambers. And then once he did that, he would shoot them straight to the basement. And he would use surgical tables, excuse me, he would use surgical tables and medical tools to dissect them. And he would sell their organs and their bones to the black market mm -hmm. for medical institutions. So like that was, he, his right. medical background came in very handy for that. Evidently this murder hotel burned down by an unknown arsonist shortly after he was arrested. And it was largely rebuilt and used as a post office until 1838. Till 1838 or 1938? So, excuse yeah. me, till 1938. Um, besides his infamous murder castle, Holmes also had a one-story factory which he claimed was to be used for, for glass bending. Huh. It's unknown if the factory furnace was ever actually used for glass bending or if it pretty yeah. much think it was a crematorium. I'm, I'm voting for the crematorium because it seemed like he really got a certain kind of wicked, evil sort of enjoyment of from killing people and doing it in weird, creepy yeah, ways. Yeah, I don't think he had that much, like, interest in artistry and, like, stuff like that either. So I think that that's crematorium. So what's interesting is that there's copies of the article that was published um, showing the floor plan of his murder castle in 1895. Um, mm. with scenes found inside of it, including the vault, the crematorium, the trapdoor. And this was like, when did he get arrested? So this was published in 1895. Um, he was arrested. Oh yeah, so this was after he was arrested. They published it. But you can actually see the articles from 1895 of the floor plan of That's this crazy. murder castle. Can you imagine reading about this in the paper back then when murder wasn't really a thing? Yeah. So the term serial killer wasn't even around. Like, people must have been absolutely yeah. horrified. But yeah. evidently one of Holmes's early murder victims was a mistress of his. Her name was Julia Smythe. Um, she was actually the wife of another man. His name was Ned Connor. And they'd moved into Holmes' building and started working his... Her husband, Ned, started working as a f behind the pharmacy's jewelry counter. And okay. Holmes comes in and says, oh, hey, this girl's hot. I don't care if she's married. I'm going to start a little something-something with her. And when yeah. this man, Ned... Because he's also now thrice married. Yeah, he's, he's got yeah. women all over the place. Yeah. And after this man found out about the affair with Holmes, his wife's affair, he quit his job and moved away, leaving Smythe and her daughter Pearl behind. Mm. So the woman, Julia, gained custody of Pearl and remained at the hotel, continuing this relationship with Holmes, even though her hubby was like later days. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I don't think it's really clear whether she got uh, a divorce or anything like that, but I think that divorces maybe were expensive and sometimes people just decided back then to just leave. <laughs> and then, you know, it's not like records are going to track you and your your marriage so you could just go get married to somebody else in a different city 
Problem right. solved. Um, evidently, Julia and Pearl disappeared Christmas Eve of 1891. And Holmes was like, oh, I have no idea where she went. She must have died during an abortion. Uh. And what happened to these two has never actually been confirmed. So we know that they disappeared. We know that he said she died during an abortion. They're gone. So more than likely, they ended up as victims in his murder castle. Yeah. He had another one, another little mistress, Emmeline Sigrand. She started working in the building in May 1892 and disappeared in December. I'm not clear if it's... Oh, she disappeared. Like, this is a year after the other two disappeared. And then she vanishes. And Edna Van Tassel also vanishes. And his... I guess his favorite way to murder was by suffocation, including an overdose of chloroform. He liked to overexpose... To, lightning, to lighting gas fumes. He trapped people in airless vaults and liked to use starvation and burning victims alive in his castle. God. I mean, the guy was just a nightmare. straight up nightmarishly creepy. Yeah. Um, so then he meets this other guy named Benjamin Pitzel, who's a carpenter and has this kind of sketchy criminal past. And he has this coal bin he had invented and Holmes is like hey you want to be my right hand man let's do some criminal schemes together like how do these guys find each other that's what's so crazy to me I don't know Um, but they like started working kind of in conjunction with each other to do some criminal schemes and then in 1893 this former actress her name is Minnie Williams moves to Chicago and Holmes claims to meet her in an employment office which, interesting, right? An employment office uh-huh. was a thing back then. You just go in, you sign some paperwork, they find you a job. Um, they say it's like a temp office, right? Yeah, yeah. So some people say that he met her in Boston before that, but others say he met her in Chicago, and he offers her a job at his hotel as his personal okay. stenographer. Okay. Like, basically a secretary. Like, write my yeah. letters for me and do all kinds of other things that are dirty. Yeah. And she's like, like when sure. old-timey movies, they say, like, take this down. Yeah, basically. So she's like, sure, I'll yeah. be your stenographer. And she then helps him transfer a deed to her property in Fort Worth, Texas. And she transfers it to a man by the name of Alexander Bond, who's another one of Holmes's shady aliases. April 1893, she transfers the deed, and he serves as a notary. Like, is there anything this guy doesn't do? Seriously. And then Holmes then later signs this over to Pitzel, his buddy, the carpenter, the criminal mastermind that he's working along with. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And gives him the alias of Benton T. Lyman. So, like, these guys and their names, like, seriously. Yeah. And then Holmes and Williams stay to their husband and wife, and they rent an apartment in, in Lincoln Park, which I think was pretty nice back then. Um, Minnie's sister Annie comes to visit, and in July she writes um, that she had planned to accompany her brother to Europe. Neither Minnie nor Annie were ever seen alive after July 5th, 1893. So e. he's got this woman. He gets her to sign over the property to him. She has some kind of a relative come visit her, and then they disappear, presumably to go hang out in Europe, and he murders them, essentially. Right. Um, 
It's like a ready-made alibi. Yeah, basically. Because you're not going to find him for, I mean, not even going to worry about him for, like, months. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really seems that Holmes was pretty entrepreneurial, though. Like, it was in a really shady, scary, murdery kind of a way, but, like, he wanted to make money, and he was into <laughs> finding all these different yeah. things that he could do to try to make money. And he would sell skeletons to medical labs and schools, which mm-hmm. clearly came from the people he was murdering. Mm-hmm. Um, he and sometimes a hired assistant were accused of stripping the flesh off the bodies, dissecting them, and preparing the viable skeletons. The rest of the remains would be tossed into pits of lime or acid, effectively breaking down the remaining evidence, quote unquote. Mm. So he was eh, very, very shady. Okay, so insurance companies start to prosecute him for arson because he's mm-hmm. doing all kinds of shady stuff on the side. He's like building stuff, burning it down, like, and then filing these insurance claims. And after this starts, after they start to catch on to him, because you know, I'm sure that they could probably, he could probably only do this a few times before they're like, right. hey, like this guy seems shady, um, and and somebody had to come investigate, right? At some point, yeah. Right. He takes off and leaves Chicago in July 1894, and surprise, surprise, he reappears in Fort Worth, where he had inherited that property from the woman that he killed, mm-hmm. Minnie. Um, this was at the intersection of modern-day Commerce Street and 2nd Street. And there he starts to build another structure without paying for his suppliers and contractors. Um, evidently, there was no killings at this particular place. But he was, I think, probably trying to recreate the whole look and feel of the place in Chicago. I was going to say, yeah, there weren't any killings yet. No. Um, July 1894, Holmes is arrested and jailed for the first time. Now, the charge on this one was selling mortgaged goods in St. Louis, Missouri, which, that's a crime. Um, He was bailed out, and he meets this guy while he's in there named Marion Hedgepeth. This this guy is serving a 25-year sentence. And Holmes starts, like, figuring out another insurance swindle, and he's basically creating this plan to get $10,000 by making a policy for himself and then faking his own death, which yeah. I don't think was entirely uncommon back then. No. Uh, because it was so hard to actually really check. Well, yeah. I mean, he's already proven that you could just change your name and move oh, yeah. he halfway across the country and be a new person. So. Really had fun with that. But anyway, he promises this guy, Hedgepeth, $500. Um, for the name of a lawyer that he can trust. And then they go to this man named Jephthah Howe, which that's a crazy name, right? Jephthah. Yes. So, like, you're an attorney. So, like, if somebody came to you and is like, I need an attorney I can trust, are you thinking, like, hey, everything's on the up and up? No. Absolutely (laughs) not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) This attorney, though, is like, hey, your plan is brilliant. Yeah. And... The plan failed, though, because the insurance company became suspicious and refused to pay out. So Holmes didn't press the claim and sort of went forward with other plans with this Pitzel guy. Um, But Pitzel agrees to fake his own death so his wife could collect $10,000. And the plan was for them to split the money with Holmes and Jeff the Howe, the attorney. The attorney's like, I am on board with this. Let's do this. Let's make more schemes. And this was supposed to happen in Philadelphia. And Pitzel was supposed to be this inventor, like, with an alias. His name was supposed to be B.F. Perry. 
and that okay. he was going to get killed and disfigured in a lab explosion, which there's just there's too much creativity That's going elaborate. on in here, right? Yeah. Um, but they have to find uh, a body. <laughs> it's going to play the yeah. dead Pitzel, right? So Holmes kills Pitzel instead, <laughs> knocks him unconscious with chloroform, and sets his body on fire with benzene. Jesus. <laughs> and then when he's confessing, he says, oh, yeah, he was still alive after I used the chloroform. Um, then I set him on fire. Um, forensic evidence also presented at Holmes' later trial showed that the chloroform had been administered after Pitzel's death. So it sounds like he basically burned this guy alive and then threw a little oh chloroform on him to try to like make it look So there was like no believable. chloroform in his lungs. No. So I guess the reason why he did this is because he, he said he wanted to claim that Pitzel had committed suicide. So this would exonerate him if he was charged with murder over Pitzel's death. So Holmes was like looking at this from all different angles and like the little wheels were grinding in his head and he's like, hey, I didn't do this, but if I did, this wasn't really a murder, it was a suicide, so I'm off the hook, mm -hmm. right? So he collects the insurance payout after showing them the genuine corpse of this guy and then goes on to like fool his wife, Pitzel's wife, into allowing three of her five children to be placed in his custody. So he gets Alice, Nellie, and Howard. Jesus. He's like, hey, I realize your husband died. You're in a tough place. Let me have the kids. I'll take care of them. I'll feed them. I'll give them a job. Which I think back then, if she hadn't I known mean, how shady her husband was, maybe it was a very appealing kind of an offer. Because she's like, hey, my kids can have a life. They're going to get paid. They're going to have a career. He's going to take care of them. She has no idea he's a mass murderer. Um, in any case, though, um, she sends the kids out right. there. Yeah. They traveled through the northern United States and into Canada. And simultaneously, he's taking Miss Pitzel along a parallel route using aliases and lying to her about her husband's death, claiming that he was just hiding in London. And the kids are missing, and he's lying to her about the kids. So evidently at some point when they get to Detroit, just before they get to Canada, they're only separated from the kids by a few blocks. I mean. And I guess this guy was like beyond audacious because he's staying at another location with his wife, not very far from that, who's unaware of the whole thing. So he's like trying to put the moves on Miss Pitzel. He's got his mistress over here. He's got his wife over here. He's just got like, he's got a lot of stuff going on. Um, and then he I later mean. confesses to murdering Alice and Nellie by forcing them into a large trunk and locking them inside. He drilled a hole Jesus in the Christ. lid of the trunk and put one end of a hose to the hole, attaching the other to a gas line in order to asphyxiate them. He then buried their nude bodies in the cellar of his rental house on 16 oh St. Vincent Street in Toronto. Evidently, this home is no longer there. Um, and it's been realigned into a different street, right? So there's a Philadelphia police detective that gets assigned to investigate homes and find the missing kids. And he finds the decomposed bodies of the two girls in the cellar of the Toronto home. So he's yeah. like, ha-ha, I've got this. And he says, quote-unquote, the deeper we dug, the more horrible the odor became. And when we reached the depth of three feet, we discovered what appeared to be the bone of the forearm of a human being. So evidently this detective went to an Indianapolis where Holmes had rented a cottage. And Holmes was like, 
Yeah, he's just going back and forth. He's using all these different names. He's got these scams going on left and right. He's got insurance money. He's make, living the life, living his very best this life. This guy's all over the place. And Holmes goes to a local pharmacy to purchase drugs, which he's going to use to kill the youngest child, Howard Pitzel, which he still has with him. And then he's going to go to a repair shop where he's going to get some knives to chop the body up before he burns it. Evidently, the boy's teeth and bits of bone were discovered in the home's chimney of his little cottage in Indianapolis. So all of this, as you know, has to come to an end at some point. And Holmes's murder spree finally ends in Boston, November 17th, 1894. Jesus. He gets tracked there by the Pinkertons. He's the held Pinkertons. on an outstanding warrant for horse theft in Texas because the authorities had become more suspicious at this point. And he looks like he's about ready to flee the country with his unsuspecting third wife. So the Pinkertons, oh if you don't God. know who they are, just a little side note, they're a detective agency. Pinkerton, founded as the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, is a private security guard and detective agency established in the U.S. by Scotsman Alan Pinkerton in the 1850s. He became famous when he claimed to have foiled a plot to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln, who later hired Pinkerton agents for his personal security during the Civil War. Pinkerton's agents performed services ranging from security guarding to private military contracting work. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency hired women and minorities from its founding, a practice that was uncommon at the time, and it was the largest private law enforcement organization in the world at the height of its power. So, like, mm -hmm. yeah. They're, 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 were, they're not messing around. And evidently, somebody hired them and... They were oh, like yeah. the OG Secret Service, because originally the Secret Service was just about like yeah. counterfeiting. Um, and so like it wasn't until Lincoln was actually assassinated that they became like guarding against assassination. But yeah. So I think what they were doing is like kind of what like Dog the Bounty yes. Hunter does. Like there was a warrant out for his arrest and so they went after him and, and they it was grabbed him like and, a by and any took him means in. Necessary situation. Yep. So by July 1895, they had found Alice and Nellie's bodies. Chicago police and reporters began investigating the building, like his murder castle. Um, and then they're like making sensational claims left and right, um, which I think was not uncommon back then either. I think newspapers were very salacious. There was no requirement that you had to have evidence or proof. I think that a lot of yeah. stuff was made up in a lot of newspapers back then just so they could get people to buy the newspaper. Um, but no evidence was found that could have convicted Holmes I mean. in Chicago <laughs> at that time. So I guess they say that stories of torture equipment found in the building were 20th century fiction, which again, the newspapers were very salacious and they had a habit of mm -hmm. kind of zhuzhing things up to sell papers. So... In October 1895, Holmes is put on trial, and he is basically being tried for the murder of Benjamin Pitzel, yeah. which is his little buddy who was supposed to you know, be the fake victim so they could have an insurance scam. He was found guilty, and he was sentenced to death, because back then, everyone was sentenced to death. <laughs> it wasn't a th you didn't get to spend life in prison. It was death. Um, and then they also found that he had murdered the three missing Pitzel children. He was convicted and confessed at the same time to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto. But there are people, though, that say he confessed to murdering people that were still alive. 
Um, so again, you got to take that with a grain of salt. I don't know why he would confess to a bunch of murders. Maybe he wanted to make himself into a yeah. celebrity or something like that and figured that the more he said, you know, the more famous he would become. But he was also convicted of six attempted murders. He was paid $7,500 by the Hearst newspaper for his confession. But it was quickly found to be mostly nonsense, they said. So he's, like, doing things left and right to make himself sound pretty awesome right. so he can be a little celebrity um and he gave a whole bunch of different accounts about his life um initially saying oh i'm totally innocent and then later he said he was possessed oh, by right. satan but it seems like he was a pathological liar and it makes it really hard for researchers to kind of figure out what the truth is and what he actually did um he wrote his confessions in prison and mentioned um, how drastically his facial appearance had changed since his imprisonment, because I'm grim and gruesome looking now. Um, and he was probably being abused or whatever, and said he was beginning to resemble a devil. So I, clearly he's got a little bit of mental illness going on there. I mean, or how much of that is like David, David Berkowitz asked? I like, don't know. It wasn't me. It was like... Seriously. It was Playing just, it up you know, so it he could double. try to get, you know, off. Anyway, yeah. he was executed... Um, and his body was interred in an unmarked grave at Holy Cross Cemetery, which is the Catholic cemetery in Philadelphia, western suburb of Yadin, Pennsylvania. That's interesting that he was in a Catholic cemetery. Right? I didn't know that they could put somebody in one of those that had been... They can as if you... So I'm not you, Catholic, so you, I, I think the only... I'm not either, but I think the only... And this is just from like reading, reading Wikipedia. I think the only reason that you wouldn't be Suicide. able to be buried... And a Catholic cemetery is suicide. Interesting. Because um, you could be, you could have a priest come absolve you of your sins before you died. Correct. Okay. And but like, there was, I didn't know sorry, he was Catholic ahead. either. He's raised by a, Me- a Mennonite family, right? Oh, maybe. Oh, or Methodist? Maybe it was Methodist. Methodist, yeah, you said Methodist. So he was raised by a Methodist family, so I don't know. Interesting. On New Year's Eve, 1909, Hedgepath, the guy who got pardoned for basically tattling on Holmes, was shot and killed by police officer Edward Jabrek during a holdup at a Chicago saloon. So clearly, (laughs) Hedgepath was a no-good, worthless criminal who ended up dying anyway. March 7th, 1914, the Chicago Tribune comes out with this article that talks about this man named Patrick Quinlan, who was a former caretaker at the Castle and this basically meant the mysteries of Holmes Castle would remain unexplained. He committed suicide by taking strychnine. Ooh. And his body was found in a bedroom with a note that read, I couldn't sleep. So they say he'd been haunted for several months and was suffering from hallucinations. Which, it's entirely possible. I mean, what if he had gas leaks and all kinds of other stuff in this weird-ass castle? Um, and then the castle itself was gutted by fire August 1895. Evidently, two men were seen entering the back of the building between 8 and 9 p.m. About an hour and about a half an hour later, they were seen exiting the building and rapidly running away. Following several explosions, the castle went up in flames. And uh, investigators found a half-empty gas can underneath the back steps of the building. The building survived the fire but remained in use until it was torn down in, in 1938. Excuse me. And the site is occupied by the Inglewood branch of the U.S. Postal Service. So what's interesting about this case, too, at the end part of it was that there's some kind of allegations that Holmes didn't, in fact, get executed, that he escaped. He had managed to convince somebody else to stand in for him and that he actually escaped. 
Due to his coffin being contained in cement, his body was found not to have decomposed normally. His clothes were almost... it couldn't get, like... His clothes were almost perfectly preserved and his mustache was found to be intact. The body was positively identified by his teeth and being that as being that of Holmes. He was then reburied. So yeah, that's weird. this was in 2017. There was this whole big scandal about... They exhumed him in 2017? Yeah. There's this, there was this whole big scandal that it wasn't really him that had died and all that kind of stuff. And so they were like, right. let's put this bad boy to rest. And so they dug him he up. He still had a mustache? Yes. How creepy is that? In 2017. Yeah. And they put his, his thing, in, his coffin in cement because they didn't want people to dig him up because he was this little right. celebrity and all this kind of craziness. And anyway, it's a very interesting case. That is wild. I find him very, very interesting as a person. And I think there's a movie coming out or maybe it came out already oh really the, wait as of 2019 an adaptation of the devil in the white city with martin scorsese and leader oh. is in development that was initially reported in 2015 to be a features film starring dicaprio once hulu agreed to a partnership with paramount the project was announced as a series with no confirmation of whether scorsese and dicaprio would direct or star in it as of 2021 production has yet to commence so there's a movie in the works but yeah. or a show, one of the two. Who knows what will actually happen with it? But it would be interesting to see DiCaprio play H.H. H. Holmes. I think he would be amazing. I've read, he could do a really good job. I've read a lot of that author that wrote Devil in the White City, but I've not read that one yet. Yeah, I want to read it too. Like, it's it's good. Yeah. But I've read a lot of Eric Larson. He's very good. Yeah, but I would love to see DiCaprio in that role. I think he would kill it. Anyway, H.H. H. Holmes, interesting man, very, obviously very intelligent, but very, very sneaky, manipulative, and shady AF. Yeah, no kidding. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, what's our social media? We are at the BFD Podcast on Instagram, so we will post all kinds. There's a ton of pictures of H.H. H. Holmes in the house, and... There's probably a picture of the floor plan out there. We'll see uh, what we can get. Interesting. There. Interesting stuff. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.